As many of you know, if you've been around for this series, you've probably tracking here. We are currently working our way through a sermon series intended to take us right up to the season of Advent. We're basically walking through 15 of the 150 Psalms, known as the Songs of Ascent, that are part of this hymn book of the Old Testament, as many have come to declare the book of Psalms. It's an album that, as I've said, Week in and week out, the Israelites made their playlist as they would travel to Jerusalem several times a year for the major Jewish feasts and festivals. And yet it has bearing on our lives even today. Uh, You'll notice, and we talked about this throughout this series, that the Psalms uh, speak in general sort of broad terminology to give room for God's people, not just in the historical context in which they were written, but even up to present day. We can take these Psalms and we can do something with them. They have purpose for us as well. It's an incredibly diverse album, lyrically speaking, that that we've been sitting with this fall, capturing the fullness of the human condition and experience so that we've seen songs of lament at this point in this series, reminding us that we're not home yet. Hallelujah, right? That this is not our forever home. That we've been invited to come to the end of ourselves, you could say, going back to the first week of this series and the promises of this broken world. We've seen songs of providence, inspiring confidence in God's commitment to preserving his people. As we talked about several weeks back, this is a God who doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't fall asleep on his children. We've seen songs of worship calling us to laugh and sing in response to God's covenant promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. We've encountered songs of thanksgiving, inviting us to declare God's faithfulness in answering the cries of his covenant people for mercy. We've encountered songs of confidence, reminding us of where true lasting security is really found in this God who surrounds his people with his sheltering presence, like the mountains that surround Mount Zion. And we've encountered songs of wisdom, going back to the last couple of weeks, declaring that without God's blessing, every human initiative is meaningless, that every one of our labors is in vain, unless our reliance is upon the Lord rather than ourselves. Psalm 129, this morning's psalm, it's one of the more difficult psalms to to categorize. Can't put it in the rock category, the country category, the funk category. We're not really sure what to do with that. it's, It's one of those psalms that scholars are divided on in terms of, you know, is this a song of thanksgiving? Because there's some element of that here. Is it a song of confidence? Because we get a little bit of that too. Is it a song of lament? Because we do experience an expression of sorrow and sadness. It's a song that looks back on the affliction of the past with gratitude for God's intervening mercy and grace, while at the same time declaring trust that God will continue to do what he's always done in sustaining his people now and and forevermore. If you pick up in verse one, of Psalm 129, the the psalmist begins with these words. He says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. This This song begins with the psalmist personifying the the affliction of Israel, essentially, a people afflicted from her her earliest beginnings. Similar to the the opening lyrics of Psalm 124, if you were around a few weeks back, you, you have this repetition of language in the first couple of verses there, which is incredibly intentional. 
Anytime you see something on repeat in the Bible, we should pay all the more attention. It's, it's an emphatic declaration in this instance of, of the affliction of God's covenant people. God having delivered them from some sort of enemy danger when they would have been swallowed up and swept away otherwise. That while there's lack of agreement on the category of this psalm, what genre of music it would fall into, so to speak, there's, there's incredibly strong consensus in regard to the communal nature of these words, that Israel would have sang these songs, uh, this song, just like we sang the couple of songs that we sang before this sermon. Let Israel now say verse one, declaring that this was a psalm sung in corporate worship, a collective song of God's faithfulness, not just individualistic in one person's life, the collective declaration that God preserves his people in the midst of their, of their enemies. As we've seen before in this series, it's a recurring theme in God's story of redemption so that the examples are way too numerous to count, right? If you go back through the scriptures, you, you see it over and over and over and over again. In the words of, of one scholar, whereas most nations tend to look back on what they have achieved, Israel reflects on what she has survived. Whether it be the story of the Exodus, where, where God delivered his people from the hands of the Egyptians, famously swallowing up Pharaoh's army in the raging waters of the Red Sea, or the many stories of David, including his various experiences of deliverance from the hand of Saul, along with the defeating of the, the mighty Philistine army, or the story of Esther, where God turned the tables on Haman as he attempted to bring about the mass genocide of the Jewish people. Over and over and over again in the Bible, you see stories of God's outstretched hand of deliverance when his covenant people would have been consumed otherwise, done for. In the case of Psalm 124, going back to a few weeks ago, the, the psalmist there describes the enemies of God's people as a beast, big and powerful enough to swallow its prey whole, or, or perhaps an earthquake capable of swallowing up the ground and those who, who inhabit it. You also have in Psalm 124 the imagery of a sweeping flood, drowning any and all in, in its path. You have the language of an entrapping hunter having established a snare for the people of God. All that imagery is found in Psalm 124. Here, in the case of this morning psalm, you get the, the imagery of a scourged man. The imagery used to describe God's people is the language of furrows upon a scourged man's back, verse three. A furrow being a, a trench made in the ground by, by a plow, either for the planting of seeds or for irrig irrigation. If you're, if you're not from a rural area, maybe not, you know, that may not make sense. Um, I, I spent the last few days uh, actually on a farm in Alma, Georgia, which might sound strange to those of you who, who know me well. What were you doing on a farm in Alma, Georgia? Um, I, I've got a, a guys reunion weekend with some college buddies. We do it once a year. And one of my buddies is from that tiny little town in South Georgia, and he built a cabin on some land. And we were riding around just yesterday down dirt roads, uh, listening to 90s country music. And I'm looking out on the sides of the road at, at farmland, and this psalm, as I've studied it throughout the course of not just this past week, but in preparation for this series, I'm looking out on this land and seeing just how deep those furrows actually run on those plots of land. I would encourage you to like get out and ride a dirt road and, and get 
getting your mind the reality of what the psalmist is describing here because what he's saying is that's the back of Israel. That's, that's the affliction of Israel. That's how deep the furrows of Israel's history run as it pertains to affliction and persecution. The long furrows being the wounds of adversaries, you might say. It's, it's the imagery not only of great affliction, but bondage. Right, verse four, the cords of the wicked wrapped tightly around the scourged man. Again, the, the story of the Exodus readily comes to mind, right? God's great deliverance of his people from Egypt, from the cords of enslavement to Pharaoh, to Egypt, the whips of, of cruel taskmasters as they would build their bricks day by day. And maybe that's the song of deliverance that the psalmist is singing. Maybe that's what he's looking back on, the story of the Exodus in gratitude and praise for the the mighty hand and outstretched arm of the Lord in leading his people out of Egyptian enslavement. I mean, that is, that is the language of scripture elsewhere in places like Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, that language of youth in Psalm 129, I loved him and, call, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Or Jeremiah 2.2, I remember the devotion of your youth. There's that youth language of Psalm 129. Your love is a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. There's the Exodus language, in a land not sown. It's, a, it's really a declaration that Israel has always suffered from her earliest beginnings. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, the imagery communicates something more broadly as the Psalms oftentimes do. Psalm 103 verse six declaring, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. That, that all language reaching beyond just the Israelites. That according to the psalmist, that the power of cruel tyrants is always temporary. That, that God's people might be thrown to the mat in seeming defeat, you could say, but never utterly and fully brought to an end. Struck down to use Paul's language, 2 Corinthians 4, 9, but not destroyed. That, that even death for the Christian promises resurrection through the finished work of our crucified and risen Savior and King, Jesus Christ. The, the psalmist goes on to say, in verse five, he says, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Here the song shifts a bit and becomes a prayer of confidence and trust that those who hate Zion might not prevail. Zion denoting the Lord's presence among his people, his covenant, his blessing. That the psalmist prays not only for the vindication of God's people, but ultimately God's righteous reputation that Israel's enemies would be turned backward like a defeated army retreating in battle, that her enemies would be like grass on the housetops, verse six, which withers before it grows up. In ancient Israel, grass would sometimes sprout atop the, the roofs, the clay roofs that, um, that sat above homes and adorned people's houses, and yet those seeds would never produce anything that you could actually reap as the grass would wither before it could produce anything harvestable. Kind of like the seed in Jesus's parable of the sower, which fell on rocky ground and was scorched by the sun, having no depth of soil, no root. 
that according to the psalmist, so it is with those in opposition to God and his covenant people. Their efforts fruitless in the end, never truly producing any sort of harvest, nothing with which to fill the reaper's hand, verse seven, no sheaves to bind. I love the way Eugene Peterson in his book on these 15 Psalms that we're studying this fall, the way he says it, he says, the life of the world that is opposed or indifferent to God is barren and futile. It is plowing a field, thinking you are trampling all over God's people and cutting his purposes to ribbons, but unaware that long ago your plow was disengaged. It is naively thinking you might get a harvest of grain from that shallow patch of dirt on a shelf of rock. The way of the world, he says, is peppered with brief enthusiasms like the grass on that half inch of topsoil springing up so wonderfully and without effort, but as quickly withering. The way of the world, he says, is marked by proud, God-defying purposes, unharnessed from eternity, and therefore worthless and futile. That, that many have sought to do away with the people of God, to silence the song of the church, and yet she remains. We, we're a representation of that reality. Like we just sang together. We ourselves an expression of the bride of Christ. Come together to sing of God's goodness. Come together to, to sing of his glory. Come together to sing of his grace. Most surely revealed in the face of Jesus Christ in whom we have every blessing. Something that, that cannot be said for those who remain in opposition to the Lord. Notice how Psalm 129 ends. With the psalmist declaring that God's enemies are on the outside looking in. If you read the book of Ruth, is a great read. It's a, it's a short read, incredibly encouraging in many ways. The book of Ruth provides us with the, the language of the traditional greeting to harvesters in ancient Israel. They would pass by each other and they would say, the, the Lord be with you, the Lord bless you. It's a greeting that according to Psalm 129 is not for those who are opposed to God and his people as they sit under the curse of God's judgment. As the Lord promised Abraham, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse three, God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The, the, the psalmist is not speaking on, on the basis of some sort of personal vendetta. It's not what this psalm is. Rather, it's a, it's a longing for the Lord to fulfill his promises, to vindicate his reputation in a world filled with evil. That like the psalmist, we're not, we're not to pray for personal revenge, but we are invited to pray for the triumph of God's righteousness over evil. Thy kingdom come out of love for, for, for God, out of love for God's glory out of longing for more of his kingdom righteousness with a, with a sense of emotional honesty like the psalmist and yet leaving final judgment to God. And all the while, and this is how complex this psalm truly is, all the while warring against evil with forgiveness and love, as Jesus said, blessing those who persecute us, repaying no one evil for evil, Romans 12, 17 rather overcoming evil with good, calling enemies of the Lord and his people to faith and repentance before the trumpet sounds and it's too late. 
So that if you're not a Christian, the best thing I could possibly say to you this morning is that the appropriate response to a pilgrim song like this is to turn to Jesus. That you might no longer stand on the wrong side of Psalm 129. That this is the beauty of the Bible. We were talking about this before the the service. If you read uh, Luke chapter 24, it's the story of the road to Emmaus. Jesus in his resurrection meets a couple of of, uh, disciples on this road and essentially proceeds to unpack the Old Testament for them and to show them how he's the fulfillment of all of it. And as we were talking before the service, I was just reminded yet again that it's really hard to go very far in God's word, both Old Testament and new, and not come across something of Christ. Because the the truth is, Jesus is the truly scourged man who willingly suffered affliction, the long furrows of his adversaries, verse three, which is why Isaiah would say things like this. Isaiah 50, verse six, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Or more famously, Isaiah 53, verses five and six, but he, pointing to Jesus, the coming Messiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his wounds, by his stripes, by the furrows, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're on the outside looking in, Isaiah says, apart from this savior and king, Jesus Christ. But the Lord, Isaiah says, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You can say it this way to use the language of Psalm 129. Jesus bore something greater than the furrows of the plow. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2, 24. That we might be freed from the cords of wickedness, verse four. That we might live to righteousness. So if you're not a Christian, the invitation is simple. It's to come to him in faith this morning. He's the only worthy savior. He's the only worthy king. And if you you are a Christian, I think one of the greatest words that make up the lyrics of this song And one of the greatest words that you'll find in the entire Bible is the word yet or but, verse two. In the words of one commentator, that little word contains big theology. C. Hassel Bullock, former Wheaton College professor and scholar in speaking on this psalm, he says, this little word incorporates the power and grace of God to turn Israel's misfortunes into victories to transform the sins of God's people into forgiveness and thus to turn the tide of history. The power, of course, was in neither the weapons of war nor the warriors who wielded them, but in the righteous God who had wielded his character, not war against those forces. We could say that this word, yet or but, represents God's incomparable grace. That that on that little word rests not only the fate of Israel, but the fate of the church, your fate, my fate, which is why Paul would say in Galatians chapter four, verses three through five, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But yet, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the words of one commentator, 
It's the great cord severing yet of redemptive history. The gospel is. That the yet of the gospel frees us from the cords of bondage, verse four, that we might walk in obedience to the one who set us free. Going back to last week, that we might bow to the great lion Aslan, the great Christ. We might trust that, that there's always a yet for the people of God. That we would be encouraged by that, no matter how rough it gets. That we could declare like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We talked about this when we walked through 2 Corinthians months ago that the seeming tragedies of life for the Apostle Paul were eclipsed by the victories that he knew in Jesus Christ so that he could declare himself treated as an imposter yet faithful to speak and embody the truth by God's grace, that he could speak of himself as unrecognized by his opponents yet beautifully and wonderfully recognized by God and fellow saints. Faced with his own mortality in the midst of the sufferings of this world yet animated in Christ, alive in Christ, sorrowful in the furnace of affliction, yet with with an inextinguishable joy in Jesus. Poor, according to the world's standards, yet carrying, as, as Paul uses the language elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, carrying the priceless treasure of the gospel that makes those who receive it wealthy. Having nothing in the eyes of many looking in on his life, yet, Paul would say, possessing all things as a co-heir with Jesus. So that the gospel turned everything upside down for the Apostle Paul, radically reorienting his perspective, just like the psalmist. The shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ fell across Paul's view and it changed everything. The great yet of the gospel, that Paul understood that there's always a yet for the people of God. It doesn't matter how awful it gets. That not even... To, to use the language of this morning's psalm, the imagery, that not even the great plowman, the devil of hell himself, can thwart God's purposes, amen? That, that his furrows may run deep, but the gates of hell shall not prevail, verse two, against Jesus's church, that God will accomplish his purpose in you and through you. As he was strapped to the stake, Hugh Latimer one of the leaders of the English Reformation, one of the most famous stories of martyrdom in all of church history. He was strapped next to a man named Nicholas Ridley, preparing to be martyred for his Protestant beliefs. And this is what he said. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. That's what Jesus does. Jesus has delivered such a death blow to the forces of evil that even martyrdom cannot stop the church's advance. We know how the story ends, church. With God not simply cutting the cords of the wicked, verse four, but casting out wickedness forever. To go back to Psalm 125 a few weeks ago, verse three, the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, that the Lord will triumph over evil so that God's people will never again know affliction nor attack. 
He promised that he would make it so. But not only has he made that promise to us, he's shown the power to do it in the past, which is the beginning of Psalm 129, looking back that this Psalm invites us not only to look to the future, though we should, but to remember the past, to remember the many times and the many ways that God has prevailed in our lives, whether it be the furnace of hardship or the experience of persecution and ridicule, that his people can always and forever hope and trust in him. I invite you this morning to do both, to remember the past and to hope in the future, knowing that God doesn't change, that we can confidently expect that what was characteristic of God in the past will be characteristic of God in the future because God doesn't arbitrarily change the way he relates to and with his people. That Pain and difficulty are sure to come, but they cannot forever and fully extinguish Christian joy. Because we know that even if we don't see the fullness of that harvest, this side of eternity, we will see it when all is said and done. The blessing of verse eight, if you're a Christian, that's your blessing. That you're not on the outside looking in any longer. Rather, the curse has been reversed in Jesus Christ. You're on the inside. And so I invite you, as you stand on the inside of the blessing because of Christ, I invite you in these moments to come to to lean into the privilege of joining in the song that cannot be silenced. We are the church continuing this great story, this great promise of God in this moment as we get ready to sing together of his goodness, glory, and grace. The yet of the gospel, you could say, giving us every reason to lift our voices in hope and trust in these moments to come. As we declare that we believe that there's always a yet for the people of God, no matter how bad it might get. There will also be an opportunity in the next few minutes to partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing Jesus's broken body and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Over the course of these last couple of songs, you can partake of communion whenever you're ready to do so. If you didn't grab one of the cups on the back table on your way in, you're welcome to grab one of those over these last couple songs. And as you do, I just invite you to read those couple of verses, that agrarian imagery, the furrows plowed deep into the back of Israel and picture Jesus Christ on the cross, taking your sin upon himself as you prepare to receive of the bread and the cup And just to remember and celebrate and give thanks for the greatest cord severing yet in redemptive history.